Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Over the uh, last uh, podcast, we had a guest and her name was Jen Reach and she has um, happily consented to coming back and talking to us again. We were talking about her case and she was accused back in the mid 1980s of child abuse, child molestation, and um, was given a life sentence. And she was telling us the last time what she did to try her very best to overturn that verdict. She indeed was innocent. And so we at least have a happy ending here, but we want to find out a little bit more about what happened over the 12 years that um, she was in prison. So welcome back, Jen. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So we spoke quite a bit uh, last time about um, how this occurred. And um, once you were incarcerated, what you did to try every doorknob uh, to see if any door would open for you. And you uh, said that the the greatest help came from a private investigator. How did you even know he was there? How did you learn about him? Well, as I said in the previous broadcast that I uh, wrote several letters across the country and a lady at a church, she actually went to Mr. Rogers church. Oh, <laughs> she told me, um, she became a friend of mine in a pen pal. And she told me that she had read an article about Marty and gave me his address. And I had written him and I hadn't heard anything from him. And I was very discouraged, um, very upset, crying a lot every day. And um, the in 1992, the weekend of the 4th of July, I became really depressed and I had the guards lock myself in my room. And due to what happened to me and the struggles, my faith was on and off. I'm not going to lie and say I was a holy roller in prison. I was not. It was on and off. Sometimes I believed strongly in God and could pray. And sometimes I asked God why he abandoned me. And I became very angry and tossed my Bibles. So, you know, I'm just always honest. I'm not a liar. I think with everybody, faith is like that. You know, some people might have constant faith, but I've really never met anybody. They go through hard times. But anyway, I had asked them to lock me in my cell in the weekend before 4th of July. And I had read a book by Carol Marshall, who she and her husband, Peter, were from the 1940s. They had a ministry. And she had written Beyond Ourselves. And in the book, she had talked about until we are really the, able to release the results of our efforts, um, does anything not happen? So I spent the whole weekend reading that book and praying. And I told God, if you wanted me to die in prison for a crime I didn't commit, then you had to give me the strength because I don't have it. And um, that Monday, I, re I received a call to the counselor's office that a man named Marty Ann had called me and I about passed out. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a prayer answered. Yeah. 
And so then I talked to Marty and he agreed to represent me. And then another man who I had written and read his books, Dr. Richard Gardner, that did a lot of research in this um, um, hysteria, had offered to help pay his fee. And then I met Kim Hart, a woman who was the director of an organization called Vocal at the time. And Vocal stands for Victims of Child Abuse Laws. And she helped me find an attorney and um, experts to review what the children had said and the evidence and the police reports and everything. And Marty helped get the police reports from the Freedom of Information Act. And through all their efforts um, in 1996, um, March of um, February of 1996, um, I went back to court and had a hearing. And then on March the 7th, 1996, my conviction was overturned. And I was escorted to the um, Dayton, Ohio, to the police department. Wow. To what, be released. what must you have felt um, on that day in March in 1996? Could you oh. believe it? Oh, no. And all I could do is sit and sob for a long time. And then when I got to Dayton, Ohio, and somebody somebody anonymously bonded me out. And when I left the next day, it was snowing. And it was the first snowflakes I had seen without a barbed wire fence. And so I flipped my head back mm -hmm. and held out my tongue and let a snowflake um, touch my tongue. That was my first, that snowflake was my first touch of freedom. Yeah. Wonderful. So, um, so after you were released, um, what, how did you put the pieces of your life back together? And what was your life like? It was very, very difficult to put the pieces back. I started out because I lived with Kim Hart for a while and I worked in her nonprofit several hours around the clock. Um, I would frequently have nightmares. Mm. Um, I would go into closets and cry. They would find me in closets crying. Um, I would have panic attacks. And I sometimes I was afraid to leave my yard. I had to really um, be supported to learn how to drive again. Um, I saw a therapist that knew how to deal with PTSD. He said, that's what was wrong with me, why I was always panicking and frightened. And um, so I received therapy. I went back to college. A vocational rehab helped me because I had PTSD. And a, a lot of exonerees is not always aware of that resource. And that's why I mentioned it to help others. Thank you. Um, because... They can go, PTSD is definitely a disability and hinders you from getting a job. And they can get job training and assistance with finding a job. That's great. That's wonderful. And so I went through them and I went back to college. I got a bachelor's degree and then I got a post-bachelor's degree, a legal assistant. And I planned for a career and then my father was diagnosed with cancer. And then my son had many behavioral problems because I was taken away from him. So I moved in with my father and my son and I took care of them for the next three years. 
I was also on Montel and Maury, and they told a bit of my story. But it was a struggle every day to get my life back together, to renew with my family, to cope with my father dying and losing him, to cope with my son's issues, and to cope with renewing my bond with my daughter and everything, because I so much. And my daughter kept telling me, you're talking to me like I'm still a four-year-old mom, and I'm not. So I had to learn that I couldn't go back in the past. They can no longer be small children. They were one and four when I got arrested. One and four. Okay. Yes. And, and now they were practically adults. And so I had to learn to relate to them as practically adults and not with my memory of them as being babies. Right. During, and, during your incarceration, did you stay connected to the children? Oh, yes. I, um, my, my dad and family members could bring them at least once a month to see me, sometimes twice. Um, I wrote them lots of letters and we talked by phone and I made books. I liked the writing stuff and I wanted to teach my children um, to be part of my life and what I valued. And so I would write them books about praying or about brushing their teeth or a, about doing well in school and um, or about watching the butterflies and enjoying nature. So, or I paid other women to knit them because I couldn't knit to knit them outfits and things. So gloves and hats for winter. Did they, were they able to, uh, were you able to call them <clears throat> while you? Yes, I had to call them collect and then my dad would take it. Right. Right. So, so you stayed in touch with minimal visits once a month. Isn't much. Were, were they, no. in, were they in a different state than you were? Yes, they were also that made it a hardship. Right. Yeah. My daughter was um, in Ohio part of the time, but my dad always brought them to visit and he was in Indiana and my siblings were in Indiana. I grew up in Indianapolis. I'm a Hoosier. I see. Okay. All right. So the challenges you faced then, um, after shortly after your incarceration, now you are, how many years has it been that you are out? I was exonerated in 1996. So it's been, I think, 25 years. And are there still, after all this time, are there still challenges? Oh, absolutely. Um, for example, I was doing well for a while. Then when COVID hit and I was stuck in my house, surrounded by a fence and everything, it gave me flashbacks of prison. Mm -hmm. And I became very depressed. And when I tried to talk to my doctor about my depression, she said, well, I'm not an expert. I can't help you. You'll have to wait till a uh, a psychiatrist is available and it's about a year from now. Oh. So yes, I, I went through a very horrible time and sometimes I still do. Sometimes I still have flashbacks. Um, a lot of people think you just heal over it or after a few years, you should get over it by thinking positive. Right. I'm a positive thinker I, or I could have never got a college degree. You know, I could have never built a career or kept fighting without giving up. But I still have many, many times where this haunts me 
and there's still a stigma. I have many, many supporters, but there's always one person in a group that says, well, you were arrested, you were convicted, you must have been guilty, and no innocent person is ever convicted of child abuse. Mm -hmm. So there's always one person, even if it's every five years, that wants to give me a hard time still. Sure. I so I... I still, you know, am recovering every day, um, but I'm proud of where I'm at. And I'm never going to quit. Good. You know, and, and along those lines, you have two things that you um, hold dear right now that you're working on. I want you to tell us about those. One is a nonprofit you want to start. And the other is a book that you are almost finished writing. Yes. Right. Yes. So tell us about those. I'm I'm working on a nonprofit where I want to, um, with my past legal assistant degree, and I was a social worker for 18 years. And with all of that education and all of those skills, I want to work um, to help people in prison that might not qualify for um, the Innocent Project or other groups might be too busy for them. I hope um, to do research. That's one of my favorite things to do. My friend Chrissy teases me all the time about it, but I love the research. So I hope with my skills and my love of research to be able to help others find justice. Um, it's a lot harder than I thought starting a nonprofit because it's a little more expensive and there's red tape, um, but I'm not going to give it up. I, I want to help other people. And um, and I keep calling and making new contacts. And then I've written a book about what happened to me. Um, I haven't only focused on the wrongful conviction and how it happened. I also wanted to focus on how hard it is to rebuild your life after this. I want to help increase awareness of what strength and that this is just not a minor thing, wrongfully convicting someone that police and prosecutors and investigators should be held accountable. The court should, um, because it's not like overnight. I mean, it's been 25 years for me and I am still rebuilding my life. And my children are still rebuilding their life. They still have many problems growing up without a mom. Oh, sure. And so I want to write my book and share that with people. My hope is because a lot of other exonerees have written wonderful books before me, but I hear that they're not highly published. I'm at bought or read. I'm hoping somehow I can increase that awareness because people need to become more aware there needs to become a higher awareness of this system. Well, I think, I think since you are very resourceful, as you showed us uh, about all the people and groups that you contacted looking to get your case, you know, uh, before a judge and, and overturn, um, maybe you could reach out to the media. Um, there's so many talk shows, uh, and also on, on TV there, well, you said you already were on two, two, um, uh, shows. And once you get your book published, that's probably the way to do it is just to, 
try to, uh, you know, appear before any audience who will have you. <laughs> right? Yes, and I'm trying to get John Grisham to contact me. Right, um, right. But it seems almost impossible because he has gotten involved with Centurion Ministries and he's an right. advocate for people wrongfully convicted. Well, with his experience as a writer, he would make a good publisher or yeah. he yeah. would have a good publishing company. I'm trying so desperately, not only to advocate for myself to John Grisham, um, but for others, but I have no luck reaching him, but I'm still trying. I'm keep, not giving keep up. trying, right. Keep trying. Now the, the organization, the nonprofit, how do you have a clear idea of um, how you will find people to help? Um, yes, I've contacted a couple of law professors at universities. Um, I'm, we're involved right now with a private investigation group with a man who has 40 years of law enforcement. I just met an attorney today um, in Anderson, Indiana. Um, his name is John Shanks, and he said that he and his wife um, would help me. So I'm meeting people, and I'm just going to keep networking. I see. And, and once let's, let's assume you uh, people start to learn about you because there are others who have done what you have done. I have had some of them on the air with me. One of them is Jeffrey Deskovic. Um, oh yeah. He's a very nice guy. I've contacted him for help as well. He's right. Super. And he started a nonprofit to do exactly what you want to do, which is help others in the same situation that you found yourself in and he found himself in. So once you do contact people or the other way around, they contact you, what exactly do you hope to be doing with them or for them? I, I hope to be researching the evidence um, and helping the person writing letters to um, attorneys or um, innocent projects to ask them to get involved with their case. Um, I also took a grant writing class online through IU um, Northeastern. I am going to take a few more and I hope um, with my learning to write grants, um, they said one way to increase your skills is to write um, some grants pro bono. So I hope to help other agencies um, that want to help people win grants and improve my skills. And so those are the things I want to try to do. Right. And, and the money that's very critical, isn't it, Jen? That yes, a, a grant is wonderful and, and you just have to know how to write uh, for a grant, but you have to find a way to raise money for the nonprofit because yes. it's, it's expensive. Yes, and it's very uh, hard to get the money, but I will keep researching and keep trying. I won't give up. Good. I might fail, but it won't be from giving up. That's right. Now, um, let me ask you about um, where your family, your children are today. Would you say they have made it through the, the toughest part of your incarceration and are on a better path? Not my son, no matter how much I try to help him. He's homeless and he oh. um, has anxiety around people and he has a drug problem. My son is not on a good path. Yeah. Um, no matter how much I try to help him, it doesn't help. It breaks my heart. Yeah. 
that's that's um, very sad my daughter's doing better but she still has issues as well but she works and she's not hooked on drugs and um but they both still have problems but especially my son it just breaks my heart yeah he was so, that was the little boy who was a year old when yes and I have offered to put him through college. I have offered to put him through rehab and he will do none of it. And he's now 38. He's way too old for me to be able to do anything to help him. But yeah. I just keep praying and hoping. Well, hopefully he will turn around. Maybe uh, it's got to come from him, doesn't it, Jen? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's what I've learned. I thought I could fix it. I can't. No, you can't. You really, you can fix yourself. And that's, and you are a wonderful role model. This is what you're trying to do is take something that was so horrific that happened to you and turn, turn it around using those years that you were incarcerated and trying to help others in the same spot you were in. So you're a wonderful role model to him and you, you don't know uh, whether he'll pick up on that and hopefully he will, hopefully he will. And so, I'll keep hoping he will. Keep hoping, right, that's yeah. right. So at this point, um, we are uh, almost out of time but we do have a few more minutes. What What would you like to leave our listening audience with what what message other than the messages that you uh you have spoken about during this interview if you ever get chosen on a jury make sure you do your own thinking and your own investigation just don't believe everything you hear make sure what you hear is solid evidence before you say guilty and um to be open-minded and willing to help others especially that have been wronged by our justice system. We really need to open our minds and make changes to create a better justice system. That's if true. they're not wrongfully convicting people, they're over sentencing people or they're harming children. And we just need changes and it won't happen unless everyone in our country opens their minds and start wanting those changes. Right. People are, wrongfully convicted they are innocent of crimes there's people over sentences and they're children that are accused of crimes and traumatized and they're really young and they should be given a chance to rebuild right agreed absolutely and you are uh, in touch with others who were in your same spot where you are you not yes uh, I, other other women right yes i i have several i know several other women who've been wrongfully convicted and several organizations that try to help us. One of them is a, a guest we had on quite some time ago. Christine, and that, yes. And that's how I learned about you is Christine Bunch, who will give a little plug for her, her group, Justice for Just Us, J for J, she calls it. So yes. you'll probably do something a little, little bit like that yourself. Do you have a name for your, your uh, nonprofit? Right now, we hope it's going to be advocates for truth, but you always have to check and make sure it's not right being taken. used. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it, Christine is a wonderful person, and she helps many people. Is it comforting to you to have other women who walk the same path that you have walked? Um, can you, do you lean on them from time to time? Yes, but it's sad for me too that they went through it as well. But I'm grateful to have them to lean on. That's great. 
Oh, that's wonderful. I'm sure uh, that it is a great source of support and comfort because you know and they know you almost don't have to speak because you both know what each other, ha you know, each of you have been through. And yes. uh, that's that's a great thing. So, And well, we all have similar where when we get out and no matter how hard we try to rebuild, we still don't feel like we fit into society. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I hope I hope in in your speaking with us today that people see this side of things and and understand that mistakes can be made and they're very costly mistakes. Right. So I thank you so very, very much for the courage to share your story and just to spend your time with us today. I really appreciate it, Jen. And thank you, Harriet, for caring. I really appreciate you as well. Thank you so much. Well, please stay tuned next time uh, to Pursuing Justice when we will meet Jen's private investigator, who is Marty Yant, and he will spend some time with us telling us of how he helped her. And he was invaluable. So thank He's you. He's a wonderful person and he helps a lot of people. You'll uh, like him. That's, that's great. All right. So thank you all for listening and come and join us next time on Pursuing Justice.